Was it good? Was it bad? What was it like working with him, working with her? You'll hear all the tales you wish you knew. Every aspect of the theater, too. Feel your love of Broadway anew on Backstage Babble. Well, so I'd love to just go ahead and start us off by asking, how did you first become interested in theater? My sister is a bit older than I am and was living in Baltimore, Maryland when I was in elementary school. And she gave me, I think my family kind of recognized that I had some talents um, that needed to be explored. So she gave me a summer camp at Baltimore Actors Theater and I stayed, I spent the summer with her and I took acting and music and ballet and guitar and mime. And that was it. I mean, I just knew once I was on the stage working with the acting teacher and he had encouraged us to do some improvisational monologues, I was creating characters and making people laugh. And I think that's when I knew for sure. I was like about 11 when I figured, oh, this is it. This is my destiny. Oh, yes. <laughs> you mentioned that your parents sort of supported your talent and people around you did, but did they actually support your sort of doing it as a career? Or? Oh, yeah, of course. I mean, my mom was so super supportive. Um, she used to um, like to, you know, say that, you know, I wouldn't encourage you if you weren't talented, you know, and she's like, you're so talented and I wouldn't encourage you if you weren't. So um, that kind of propelled my, I just never had any pushback from anybody in my family or friends. And they were so supportive of me going to college for and getting a degree in speech and theater. So. And did you go to college and what was that process like for you? Um, I went to Wagner College and um, I'm originally from Rochester, New York. And I knew that I wanted to go to a school that was close to New York City because that's where Broadway was. And I got into Wagner College. Um, I got into their musical theater program. And um, yeah, that's kind of where I got my training. Um, it was one of the only schools that had musical theater as opposed to separate departments for acting, music, and dance. And this one kind of combined all of three. And they were doing three main stage musicals and one main stage play a year. And that's really where I got my feet wet. You know, I felt like I was in a repertory company and we were doing so many shows a year. And that's really where I learned my craft was on the stage. I mean, you know, obviously the curriculum and the, you know, the, the schoolwork, you know, was really in, the training, you know, was important. But I would say that the majority of what I learned about comedy and timing and audience participation and how that imbues where you go with um, comedy is really, that's kind of where I learned it, like just jumping into the deep end. Oh, yeah. And during this time, were there performers who you looked up to or shows you saw, things like that? Oh, yeah. I mean, you know, being in college in New York City, I got to go see many, many shows. As a matter of fact, when I was in high school, I think the first show I saw was Dreamgirls. 
-hmm. And then the second show I saw was uh, 42nd Street. And this is back in the 80s. And um, I was just, that was it. I mean, I just was, you know, I was blown away. And we were encouraged in college to go see as much as we could possibly see. And um, if I went back to look at all my playbills, I'd probably be like, wow, I, oh my God, I saw this and this and this. Um, and I think that helps you understand what the nature of the business is too, watching these professional actors um, go from show to show or not go from show to show and to see how you hold your own in a Broadway theater um, was different than the college atmosphere, of course. Um, but yeah, I, I mean, I I would say some of my early influences were really Cheetah Rivera and Barbara Streisand. And I mean, I just had so many role models looking up as, you know, as a kid and as a college student. So. Right. And what was the process like of sort of finding your niche in terms of the type of roles that you'd audition for and all of that? Well, interestingly enough, in college, um, I was kind of the token soprano. So I did a lot of classical roles or classic roles, you could say like Brigadoon and Very Good Eddie and Cinderella. And I did a lot of that just because I I didn't realize how much of a soprano I was until I got to college. I had did train in um, high school with an opera singer, and um, and I knew I had a higher register uh, back in high school. But then it really got explored and honed in college because my voice teachers in college were also opera singers, and uh, discouraged me from belting. And of course, I wanted to belt because I was in musical theater. So I was like, I'm going to belt whether you want me to or not. So you better teach me how to do it the right way. Um, but I was really doing a lot of classical roles. And not that I didn't, I did a couple of um, belting roles in school, but mostly soprano stuff. And um, when I got out of school, I was still doing a lot of soprano coloratura stuff. And, um, you know, different workshops of things. And uh, I was really quite lucky that my voice was so versatile. But as far as finding my niche, I really kind of grew out of that and really went more into the belt stuff and the belting roles and the character roles, the young leading lady roles, um, and more into a musical theater format of singing. Um, as far as finding my niche, I mean, I just was really lucky that directors could see like all of my talents and kind of place me in roles that kind of fit whatever it was that I was bringing into the room. And one of these early shows you did was Theta Bara and the Frontier Rabbi. Mm. And how did that come about for you? Um, well, that was just an audition um, that I went on and that was, a show written by Jeff Hockhauser and Bob Johnson and directed by Lynn Taylor Corbett. And Carol Hansel was the casting director and called me in for the role of Theta. And Jeff wasn't so sure about me, uh, but Lynn was. And she goes, I think it's really this girl. It's this girl for sure, it's this girl. And if I'm not mistaken, I had done 
a workshop of Jekyll and Hyde right before Dita Barra. And that's where I met Lynn Taylor Corbett. Um, we had done the workshop. I had also done the world premiere of Jekyll and Hyde at the um, um, Alley Theater in Houston. So that was Jerry Mitchell and Gregory Boyd. But then I did, like a year or two later, I did the workshop, which was down at the Triborough Manhattan College or something down there. And that's where I met Lynn Taylor Corbett. And she said, I have a role I have a project that I'm doing and there's a role that I'd like you to be seen for. And I think that's how Theta Barra happened. So she brought me in for that audition and she was so sure of me, but Jeff wasn't. And I think he took a leap of faith. I think the whole, you know, team wanted me. And I was so lucky because the story was just so wonderfully written about this silent movie star, Theda Barra, who was really in real life, Theodosia Goodman, who was a very nice little Jewish girl from Ohio. And she became like this uh, screen siren who was known for, you know, I mean, Theda Barra is an anagram for Arab death. And uh, she was, became quite famous. And um, it was just a really charming musical that had a lot of comedy in it and a lot of sweet songs and funny songs. And uh, she had to be really uh, sexy, but yet the other Theodosia Goodman, the flip side of her character was that she was a nice Jewish girl and she just wanted to meet a nice Jewish boy and settle down um, and leave Hollywood. So um, it was really interesting that Jeff became the one of my biggest fans ever. So the, the person that was like a little on the fence about me ended up becoming one of my best friends and we are still best friends to this day. And um, I've done many, many of their projects um, and they're just, you know, they became family. So that's that's my Theta Barra story. Wow, that is wonderful. And you mentioned um, Lynn Taylor Corbett and Jerry Mitchell, and you've worked with many great directors. So I'd be curious to know, what do you think makes the sort of ideal director to your way of working? Um, I love direction. I love, love, love when they can ask you questions that lead you to your own imagination and your own thoughts of oh 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 yes yes and it sparks you know something in you that you go oh and then you're off and running and um i've been really really lucky i've worked with some of the most incredible people and they trust you they they get out of your way but they will you know incite some kind of um spark that will lead you to make the choices that work and if they see things that are not working, they can give you a specific direction, which is just wait one more beat and then you'll have a laugh. You know, um, I also think that um, uh, good directors, well, that, yeah, that's basically it. I mean, you know, the directors that can just incite some something in you that you're like, oh, and they know you're on the precipice of it and they can just push you that extra inch to get there. Agree. Um, star theater I know you worked with early on was Chida Rivera on the Kiss mm -hmm. and tour and what was that experience like with her and um okay so Kiss of the Spider Woman was was my first production contract and I could not believe 
that it was me. Like I couldn't believe that I was going to be standing by for my my utmost theater idol. You know, I mean, between her and Patty Lapone, I was I couldn't even believe that I've gotten to work with either one of them. Um, but the people that you idolize as a teenager and you know growing up, and then all of a sudden you're in the same room with them. I mean, it's one of those things that I don't know whether it's just manifests itself in your career that you have been you know obsessing over them for so long that it actually brings it to your life but um I couldn't believe I was actually in the same room let alone standing by for her and um I had just worshipped her I every role that she had ever done I had listened to the albums you know ad nauseum just trying to you know learn everything I could from her so I booked the tour and I was a standby for her and the Marta character. Um, and I was on the road for a year with it. And um, it was just an amazing experience. And it, we, Rob Marshall and Kathleen Marshall were my mentors for that show and my director and choreographer. And, um, you know, Rob Ashford was our dance captain on the road. So uh, I got to work with him and Sergio Trujillo was on that tour and uh, as a dancer. And so they were the people shaping me into that role and my mentors and the people really directing me in the right, you know, right direction to, to do the role and to take over the role when, when it came time to step into those shoes. Yes. And what was it like to portray in that role in such a sort of dark show and have that sense? Um, I mean, well, she's she's really a movie star. She's really the escape for um, Molina. And so she's a figment of his imagination for his way to escape, you know, the dire um, streets that he's in. And so she's quite colorful. And, you know, to their, um, you know, credit, they so rightfully and smartly so went from, you know, kind of black and gray colors, you know, in the jail cell to when Molina needs to escape whatever is happening at the moment, we go into Technicolor. And um, so she's, she needs to be that for him. So she's, uh, though she is the sign of death and she can be, um, you know, she is the spider woman and she ultimately the kiss of death for him. But but everything else is she's just motherly she's guiding she's um his you know his savior actually without the spider woman and aurora he you know that's how he escapes and mentally survives his situation um but i did go on so i don't know if you're about to ask me if i went on right are you going to ask me if oh, i went on yes yes but okay so um i did go on uh once uh, in Canada about, uh, I would say like a couple of months into the tour, I think I went on once, but then we, I think by the time we were in May or June of the tour, um, Cheetah had hurt herself in the middle of a preview while we were in the city of Chicago. And I was thrown on in the middle of the show. Uh, I got to the theater, they were bringing her to the hospital they threw me in the give me love costume, which is that big yellow bird costume. And they threw me on stage in the cage 
and there I was whirling around in the cage. And I mean, it was just like, so it seemed like it happened in like 10 minutes. I'm sure it wasn't 10 minutes by the time I got from the hotel to the theater and got in costume and got on stage, but the audience was so patient and they, my God, they were so incredible. Um, I can't imagine what a heroin experience that must've been for Cheetah and the audience and the staff, you know, all trying to figure out, you know, how to keep her safe and how to keep the show going at that point. And um, they were gracious and the powers that be decided to let me open the show in Chicago. So we usually would have one preview and then the next night would be opening night. And they said, you're going on opening night. We're confident you're ready. And we had, you know, the opening night party and we had the reviewers and we had, it, it was just like being Cinderella. I, I, mean, I could not even believe my luck and my fate that I was in this position. But I will tell you one funny thing though, um, you the show opens and uh, I'm standing behind the curtain and the announcement comes over the loudspeaker of, you know, ladies and gentlemen, the role played by Chita Rivera will now be played by Janine LaMana. And you hear like 1500 people go, Oh, like they're so upset. They were like, no, I'm sure they were all there to see Cheetah. And of course they'd been waiting for years for Cheetah to come back to Chicago. So the fact that, um, yeah, they didn't get to see Cheetah during that run. Um, they, you know, as, as well as I could have possibly done in this situation, they knew I wasn't going to sell any tickets. I was a nobody. I was really young. And uh, they brought in Carol Lawrence to do that run. So I would do the matinees and Carol would do all the other shows. And um, so I, you know, I got to be between Cheetah and Carol Lawrence, which is really interesting because I had done so many productions of West Side Story in my younger years, um, like nationally, internationally. I had done several productions of West Side Story. I just like was so obsessed with the show. And I couldn't believe my fate that I was in between Cheetah Rivera and Carol Lawrence, you know, and I got to meet both of them and work with both of them. So full circle moment for me. Yes. And I'd love to ask about your process of taking on another originally Cheetah Rivera role, which was Valma Kelly in Chicago. Oh, yeah. Um, yeah, just one of the many. I mean, my gosh, I, I, I think the only thing I haven't done of Cheetahs yet is like the rink in Bye Bye Birdie. Um, but uh, I will say that in my rehearsal period, um, I had rehearsed with the Kiss of the Spider Woman cast just to go, go back a step um, before Cheetah got there. And then Cheetah came in and then I saw the way it should, I was like, oh, wow, I should be doing it that way. Like, that's the way to do the part. Holy crap. So I started to try and do what she was doing. But um, once Rob Marshall saw me, you know, do it that way, he was like, wait, wait, wait. He's like, go back to what you were doing before because that's more who you are. And that's more, it's better, it's a better fit on you and your body and what you were bringing to the part. If you try and imitate Cheetah, it's not going to work. Um, so I, I think he's the one that kind of gave me license to go, oh, wait, how would I do it had I not seen the master, you know, do it? Um, what can I bring to it that is unique to myself, right? And we are so different but yet could be similar, you know? So the same thing with Velma Kelly, I, I just had it in my muscle memory 
every inflection, everything that she had done um, on the album. Of course, I didn't get to see her do it. You know, I was too young, but I um, had the album in my head, right? So of course it becomes a muscle memory. You just go into like, it's hard to get that out of your head once you've been studying something so much. And um, I just really had to work really hard to work against that and try and find my own Velma Kelly. How would I do Velma with all of my influences, other influences, and um, all the other roles that I had done in my lifetime? What could I pull from those shows and how I did those shows? And it's it's a very um, fine line between imitation and you know honoring you know somebody else's interpretation. And you made your Broadway debut, I believe, soon after that with Ragtime. And how did that? role come about um okay so i was in toronto after chicago i left the chicago company to do the fossey workshop in toronto and lynn aarons and steve flaherty were up in toronto at the time and had seen the fossey workshop um that's just a, a teaser so then cut to i didn't end up doing fossey on broadway um, a different team had come in and we had made the decision, even though it was still an offer for me, we kind of made the decision to not have me do Fosse and star. I was starring in Fosse. Um, I was originally what would become the Valerie Pettiford track. So we decided not to do it and, you know, mutual agreement. So I was kind of out of work and uh, the live event team called and said, we have something coming down the pike. Uh, Lynette Perry is going to leave Ragtime uh, before her contract is up. She has some family issues uh, that have arisen and we'd like to see you for Evelyn Nesbitt. So I go into the audition and I go to the ladies room beforehand and who was there in the ladies room but Cheetah Rivera. <laughs> she was in the building for something else. And she said, Janine, what are you doing here? And I said, well, I'm auditioning for Ragtime. And she goes, you go get it. Go get that role. So I walk into the room and I said, I just saw Cheetah in the lazy room. And she told me to go get this part. <laughs> so they all laughed. And uh, I got the part. So I don't know. Maybe I charmed them. Maybe Cheetah's good. She's definitely a good luck charm for me. So um, anyway, I got the part. And uh, I joined the original company six months into their run. I was so unbelievably lucky and honored because I got to work with Stokes and Audra and Marin Maisie and Peter Friedman and Jim Cordy was my other leading man and, you know, Stephen Sutcliffe, you know, I mean, it was just an incredible experience. I'm so, so happy that was my first Broadway show. I think it's one of the most beautiful shows I've ever seen. One of the most beautiful shows ever written. It's a flawless piece of piece of theater. And what is it like here's to even just sort of stamina wise to be part of such a long and kind of epic piece eight times a week? Okay, so back then the Evelyn Nesbitt track was just Evelyn. She didn't join the ensemble because there are other iterations of ragtime where Evelyn is also in the chorus and does her material as well. So of the three hour show, I was only on stage for 23 minutes. 
So I would come on, introduce my character, go off, make a costume change, come on, do crime of the century, and then sit in my dressing room for about an hour, hour and a half. And most of the time I would put on black sweats and a black baseball hat and go upstairs through the back way and go sit in the audience and watch the show. Um, so stamina wise, I had a very easy, very easy track. Um, uh, I just loved being a part of it. I spent a lot of time with the children in the show off stage. Um, so when I wasn't on stage, I was, you know, in the kid camp or the, you know, just uh, spending time with them and talking to them and playing with them. It was so much fun and uh, hanging out with my cast members. So stamina wise, that was a pretty easy gig. Um, yeah. And we've talked a lot about sort of process with the different roles you've played. And I'm curious to know, has there ever been a role that's been especially sort of hard for you to find in that way? To find the character or to to find the character? Um, hmm, really good question. I hadn't thought about that one. I don't think so. I, I think I've been really lucky in that everything that I've been cast in is a really, usually a really good fit. Um, and I had done enough research on the character beforehand to kind of know where she needed to be. Um, I would say even, even something like Evita, um, that I did kind of early on in, um, the early nineties, that was an easy fit too. I, I seem to kind of gravitate towards these female driven stories where, you know, the, the story is central around these women that I'm playing. And, uh, I kind of thrive on that. Um, uh, it comes to me a lot. And I'm really grateful for that opportunity to just kind of carry a show. Um, I love it. I thrive on it. It just keeps my energy up through the whole show instead of like doing a number or two and then going off stage for an hour and coming back or something. Um, I just like being on stage a lot and, and having a lot of material and just, you know, showing the journey of this one woman or this one character. So something like that, I mean, is really challenging, um, but I'd say uh, something that I can easily assimilate to. And have there ever been roles that you've turned down? Okay, so I would say um, I generally don't turn anything down, but I did turn down, um, I think the only times I've had to turn down something is if I was doing something already, that I had already booked something. Um, and there are a couple of there are a couple of situations where um, I had to turn something down because I, I was doing, I got Kiss of the Spider Woman and I was supposed to do another show and I got Spider Woman and it, it kind of trumped the other show monetarily, what is more remunerative work. Um, so I had to, you know, go with Spider-Woman. It was a longer contract. Um, and I turned down uh, Jekyll and Hyde as well um, on Broadway because I got Spider-Woman. Um, and then another show that I had turned down, this is way, way back in the 90s when I started, I had gotten an offer to do Damn Yankees. And I had Vita Berra 
that I was, you know, doing that contract. I was in negotiations for that. So I had to turn down uh, Damn Yankees. So my Broadway, uh, my, you know, original Broadway or whatever my Broadway debuts would have either been Jekyll or Damn Yankees had I not had the other uh, shows come to me. But um, but I'm I'm so so proud and glad that it was Ragtime. That was the the right choice. Oh yes, and I believe around the time of Ragtime, maybe a little after you were starting workshops for Susical. And mm -hmm. so how did this character Gertrude come to you? Well, um, so back to Lynn and Steve seeing me in the Fosse workshop, and then they saw me for Ragtime and cast me in as Evelyn. And those two characters, you know, Evelyn is, you know, quite the little sexy vixen, you know, and the Fosse stuff was very uh, sensuous as well. Um, you know, a lot of black costumes, very tight costumes and, uh, you know, really interesting material like mine hair and life is just a bowl of cherries and you know, all this, you know, big, uh, beautiful songs that I was singing and, you know, strong, strong female characters. Uh, that I was representing. So Lynn and Steve asked me, they were said, you know, hey, we're doing a, a new project about based on Dr. Seuss characters. Would you mind being a part of it and do our reading? And I said, oh my goodness, thank you so much. I'm so honored. Thank you for asking me. And never discussed role. I just didn't ask. I was just so like thrilled that they asked me to to be a part of it in any way shape or form so we get up to the reading and we're in the studio and they handed out the scripts and steve said to me hey thank you so much for for doing agreeing to do this because we're so excited to have you I said, thank you so much for asking me and we're talking and then he looked at me and he goes you know you're the heroine of the show right and i was like I'm sorry, what? <laughs> I was like, I thought it was in the chorus. I had no idea. I didn't know what character. I never asked, didn't think to ask. And uh, I was like, oh, okay, thank you. And I walked away like, what? And I opened my script and there was Gertrude McFuzz. And I just couldn't believe in my fate. Um, and the show was so beautiful. We listened to Lynn and Steve sing it. And it was just blew us away with its heartfelt messages and its gorgeous score and um this character Gertrude was just so cute and so wonderful and so you know fleshed out so beautifully she never her trajectory never changed really from the beginning to the end so they really had thought her thought about her you know kind of arc and 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 was never really changed um so long time you know somewhere you know after the workshop and all of that I kind of had enough uh, guts to go up to Steve and say, how did you get Gertrude from Evelyn Nesbitt and Fosse? Like, where did you find Gertrude in me from those other two things that you had seen me? Like, why, why, why would I pop in your head? And he goes, well, you had these big cartoon eyes and we just kind of always thought of you. We just saw something in you and we kind of wrote it with you in mind. We kind of just always knew it was you. And anyway, there's a lot, lot more to that story um, that I wanted to go into, but which I will touch on in my uh, new cabaret show. 
a little bit more about the deeper meaning of like what they saw kind of in me and all of that. So I think uh, Gertrude came to me very easily. I just tapped into a different part of my personality that was, you know, the kid that, you know, started in theater, you know, Baltimore Actors Theater Camp, you know, summer theater camp. And what was the trial process for that show like? And were there lots of changes being made? Or... Yeah, of course. Um, we went to Toronto to do the workshop. And it was one of those actor-driven shows where, you know, we were, you know, making makeshift tales. And we were, you know, putting crates and boxes up for set pieces. And um that way you could really see the heart of the show and just the piece itself. It really didn't need costumes and sets to, to, to tell its story. And then we got to Boston and the costumes and the sets started to get in the way of the storytelling, I think. Um, and they started you know, cutting and trimming you know, parts of the story. There are so many Dr. Seuss stories um, and they needed to kind of trim it and figure out what propelled our story and what stopped the story. So we were doing uh, the Lorax. They found, you know, this beautiful, they wrote this beautiful piece, you know, for Eddie Korovich to do the Lorax and Alice Platon. And um, we just found that it was too long. It wasn't propelling the storyline and as much as it pained everybody to see the Lorax go. And it, it kind of was essential to let it go. But um, yeah, just little trims here and there, but not, not too much major until we got to New York and then a lot of different changes happened, which I can't really remember at this point. <laughs> like so many iterations we had, we had worked on the show for, I think from 99 to when we opened in, 2000 yeah so there was yeah, a lot of work being done on the show yeah and what was it like to have the director replacement with frank lati and rob marshall well frank was one of a kind and so such a prolific speaker and whenever frank spoke you felt like you were in a master class and you really were i mean he really was a great professor and a great director and so kind and um just understood the storytelling and he was just a, a beautiful person inside and out you know he's just a great guy um so when we got to new york and found out that he'd been replaced by Rob Marshall, we were quite shocked. And a lot of changes were happening, you know, costumes and, you know, sets and directors, everything had kind of changed over once we had new producers. And, um, but we had Rob Marshall, you know, to at the wheel. And Rob Marshall, as you know, is quite brilliant himself and he knew how to guide the ship you know in in another direction that you know just brought us to the suzical that we ended up with you know by the time we got to opening night and he and Kathleen have a shorthand 
obviously, because of brother and sister. And Rob was incredibly kind and encouraging. And I mean, they they were both both wonderful. We were in great hands both times. And why do you think that the show was not able to sort of quite attain the success that it could have or definitely should have? I think that the audiences didn't really understand what the show was. I think one of the maybe problems with that was that it didn't really know how to find its marketing tone. Um, we we didn't want to necessarily come off as a children's theater. I think, you know, there, I heard some people say, is it, what is this, you know, Seuss show? Is this like Blue's Clues? You know, they didn't know what they were going to see. Were they going to see big puppet type costumes? You know, they, was this a children's show? Was this, and I think it just didn't really find its tone marketing wise. I think we needed, you know, to, to make the audiences know that, no, this is a bona fide musical with adults, you know, playing, you know, yes, animals, but there's a storyline to it. And it, it really appealed to all generations. Um, once people saw it, they were like, oh my God, this was amazing. And why do we hear such, you know, like, yeah, musical, it just got a bad rap. I think we also were in the same season as the producers, which had come in like a juggernaut. And, we lost our footing, you know, um, we were competing with the producers and that was a bona fide runaway hit. And, you know, who can really compete in a season when you've got this, you know, big, huge, it's like anybody competing in the same season with like Hamilton, <laughs> you're like, well, I guess we'll, we'll take what we can get. So there were a couple Tony nominations here and there, but the show did last as long as it could being that so many you know wonderful people like Rosie O'Donnell and Kathy Rigby and Aaron um, Carter came in to do some stunt casting and Rosie's Rosie single-handedly had decided I'm gonna save this thing this is an amazing show I'm gonna put it on my show I'm gonna star in it I'm gonna bring my audience you know in on it and uh, and that really kept us running for quite some time after that once Rosie gave us a big boost. And what has it been like to be part of a show that has such a sort of cult following now? And if you... Well, I mean, how well, we were just, we're blown away by the fact that, okay, now people get it. <laughs> like now everyone gets it. I mean, Lynn and Steve are just, uh, they're just so wonderful, wonderfully talented and so good at what they do that every single show that they write um, should be in, you know, the hall of musical theater or fame. You know, I mean, I don't think there's, you know, anything that they've written that doesn't resonate with audiences. So the fact that this one in particular resonated so easily with young theater audiences and internationally has become one of the most produced shows in history. Um, so it cast its net far and wide. And we as original cast members just feel so lucky that we have all kind of been a part of that. 
and a part of that journey to watch it in the last, you know, over 20 years now, watch it become a phenomenon that it's become. And we all consider ourselves, you know, ambassadors to Suzical because, you know, people reach out to us and they're, I mean, just having people come up to me and be like, oh my God, I listened to the cast album as a kid and it's what made me want to do theater. And, you know, I did it in my, you know, school. We did it in my theater company and my theater camp. And it's just, it, it touches a lot of, a lot of people. It's very hard pressed to find a young actor that hasn't done Suzical at some point in their, you know, young, young professional lives or young school lives. That is great. And another um, show that gets done a lot that you did following that was Kiss Me Kate on Broadway. And what was the process like of kind of stepping in with Ron? And um, well, you know, I mean, it was similar to, you know, stepping in for Evelyn Nesbitt in that you don't get a, an awful lot of rehearsal time, but you get a lot of concentrated you know, rehearsal time um, with the assistant directors and the assistant choreographers and dance captains and PSMs all putting you into the show. So, you know, it's basically you all day long for about two, three weeks before you go into the show. And um, you you just do the best you can with, I, I, had, I really wanted to do Kiss Me Kate, you know, when I heard it was happening while we were doing uh, Suzical workshops and uh, readings, I was like, oh my gosh, Kiss Me Kate's happening. Oh, I want to do it. I want to do it, you know? And uh, so I was really happy that I got the opportunity to finally do it. And I just loved that character. I just thought she was so much fun. And, um, you know, it's one of those old time musicals that you go, oh my God, this is, you know, the movie. It was just all about the movie for me. And I was like, Ann Miller and just wanting to tackle that material. It's just so iconic. So I was really lucky I got a chance to do it. I didn't do it for very long um, because right after Suzical closed, I went right into Kiss Me Cape and then 9-11 happened. Um, so I, I think I went in in June and July, right after Susical closed. I think I went in to Kiss Me Kate soon after. And then in September, 9-11 had happened. And all of the theaters were suffering from lack of audience and lack of tourism. So they were all in jeopardy of closing. And we found a way, our company had kind of spearheaded this whole initiative with the Red Cross to, we we donated half of our salaries to the Red Cross to buy tickets for the EMTs and the first responders and family members to come and see a Broadway show. So that's how we got our audience back by donating tickets to those, you know, in need. And slowly but surely we kind of could keep afloat. Um, and then I think the show closed in December. And a lot of shows, unfortunately, just couldn't, you know, keep up. But as tourism started to, you know, slowly but surely come back, then Broadway started to, you know, get healthy again. Right. But I wish I'd seen you in that role. You would have been wonderful in it. Oh, thanks. Thank you. And a show you did on Broadway that didn't have as much of a defined role was The Look of Love. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, that was, oh my gosh, I mean, what an experience to sing that music. I mean, I just was so in love with every single song that was in that show. And David Loud just created the most 
beautiful arrangements, innovative arrangements, and we were in such good hands with him and Scott Ellis and, and Ranking did the choreography. And we, you know, it was a short run because it was part of the roundabout series. So unfortunately we never did a cast album and it would have been really wonderful. We all, we all felt that, you know, gosh, it would be so great to record this because the music was so great, but it was, you know, not a jukebox musical per se, but just more like a, a concert, you know, kind of a, of their catalog and how David was there in rehearsals every day with us. He was amazing and just so lovely. And, uh, you know, was still working on things and transitions and, you know, orchestrations and, oh gosh, it was just incredible. I could have done that show forever. I loved it. Loved it. Do you like about this sort of concert format? I know you're working on a concert now. Yeah, I, I love it. Um, I had done another show called Swing. Um, after Ragtime, I stood by for Anne Hampton Calloway and Laura Benanti and Swing while I was waiting for Susical to start. And um, that too was just a canon of standards and, um, you know, that era of Swing music. And I loved it. I just loved it. I went on, you know, a lot for both of them. And I just, you know, there's something to be said to sing different composers or different, you know, songs, you know, not as a character, but just kind of as yourself. So um, very happy to do that kind of concert work. I'm really lucky that I, um, I, I've been able to work with a bunch of philharmonics and bands, large bands and, um, you know, symphonies and things like that. And I just love that lush sound. I mean, who wouldn't want to sing with 40 pieces behind them? It's just pretty magical. And you mentioned with Susical the idea of it being a kid's show and not a kid's show. And something that was a Disney show that you took on was Aida regionally. Mm. And what was it like to sing that sort of more operatic score and not have? Um, that... I mean, that is a great score to sing. I mean, um, I saw it on Broadway and I was just blown away. I was like, oh my God, I've got to do this. This is such a great part. And oh, this music was just incredible. And um, I was just so lucky that I got to do it. Stafford Arima was our assistant uh, director on Ragtime and he brought me in for Amneris. And I, you know, I was so lucky I got to do it. I just loved singing through the show you know um you know it, it's just uh, music really dictates what i do as the character i kind of feel a lot in my body you know i just tend to be you know dictated by that by the orchestrations by the by the music i understand where the orchestrations are going when there's you know some kind of indication of where your comedic timing should be or you know what the song you know kind of needs energy wise so I'm really lucky that that is inside of me and um, that was just one of those roles that I was like yes I know exactly how to do this you know And you um, returned to Broadway after Aida with Sweet Charity. And what was it like to have this whole sort of issue with Christina Applegate breaking leg and all? Um, well, I've never seen 
anyone with such determination and work ethic and discipline in my life. She was an unbelievable force. She knew that we were in danger of closing if she didn't heal and didn't come back to the show. Um, just because she was attached to the show, you know, her name was above the title and uh, she was perfectly cast for it. I mean, you know, I, I wasn't really there in the beginning of um, all of the, you know, the, the pre-production of that show. Um, I kind of came into it a little late. And um, so I don't know if this was her pet project or this was a casting decision, but she was just perfect in the role. And watching her struggle to get better and get stronger and get that ankle in shape to dance that very, very difficult dance show for that character was unbelievable. And there were times on stage where she was shaking with pain, you know, and we were about to do, there's gotta be something better. And she's, you know, holding on to me while we're watching, you know, Helene sing. And I'm like, oh my gosh, okay, don't dance it, don't dance it. You know, you could hurt yourself, you know, even more. And she's like, I'm gonna do it. And I'm like, no, 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 you just sit here and watch us. And, you know, like trying to kind of like, you know, get her to to be more self-protective was impossible. She was just like, no, I'm gonna do it. And I'm like, but you're shaking with pain, you know? And this is going on while we're on stage. You know, I'm like, oh my God, like what's happening? But she was just so determined. And eventually she got that ankle back in shape. And, um, she was unbelievable. She was unbelievable in the show. She's an incredible human being. Her, you know, her work ethic is just something to be, really be admired. And we all owe a lot to her for keeping that company going. That is great. And what was it like, I believe, to have Neil Simon around as well? I don't think he was. Oh, oh. Yeah, I don't think he was. I don't think I, I mean, maybe he was prior to my coming into the company um but not not while I was there no I did open the company in in New York but they were uh they went on an out-of-town tryout to Chicago and I was not part of the production at that point but I came in by the time we got to uh, Boston and New York and how did you make the decision with that show when to leave um which I believe you did before it closed I did. Um, I was pregnant. Um, so that's why I left. Yeah. Reluctantly leaving at five and a half months pregnant. <laughs> I didn't want to go, but I think my body was saying otherwise. <laughs> they were like, you know, you're looking a little interesting on stage in that costume. I think maybe it's time for you to go. I'm like, okay. So, yeah. And what was it like then to balance being a Broadway actress with being a mother? I know you did one more sort of big starring role on Broadway and then stopped. I, yeah. Um, well, my daughter, my baby was one when I got drowsy chaperone and uh, Sutton Foster was leaving and they needed a replacement. And luckily, again, I mean, just so so lucky that I got that opportunity to play Janet Vandegraaff because I was listening while I was pregnant and the show was being you know 
developed and you know and on on Broadway and the cast recording came out and I listened to it you know like as I was in North Carolina with my baby and my husband uh I was like oh my god this is great what is this show this is amazing oh my god I would love to do this and then it just happened that I got you know I got to do it and uh I was lucky enough to bring the baby uh to um, the theater with me every night. My husband was in Afghanistan at the time. So I was all alone in the city with her. And, you know, I had a nanny and uh, she got to go to the theater with me every night. And it was a very short show. And uh, we were out of there by 10 o'clock. So I would, you know, bring her with me. And, you know, she was a great, she was a great, you know, great little roommate. And I think uh, the cast, Loved having her around. I remember, you know, certain cast members saying, okay, let me have her and take her around to the other dressing rooms and she would see everybody and, you know, they just embraced her and everybody embraced her and it was just so lovely to have her there with me. And then when my husband came home, then I could leave her home with him, uh, you know, and then I just go to the show by myself, but oh my gosh, what a, what a role, what a, what a show. I had never been anything that was so foolproof in my life every single night. And I, I told the, you know, the writers this, you know, much later when I got to do the prom last year, um, last fall, I was like, oh my gosh, I had never been in a show that was so foolproof in the com comedy. Like every single night, the audience was uproariously laughing at every joke that was written, it didn't matter if there was an understudy on, it didn't matter if like the audience wasn't into the show that night, they were with the show every single night and it was foolproof. I just was like so much fun to make people laugh like that, you know, but it's just inherent in the writing. It's just perfect. Right. And after sort of taking time off to raise your child, what made you decide when it was time to get back on stage? Well, it was really more of um, a situation that I was in where I left New York. Um, my husband was an army officer. And even though I had left um, to go be at Fort Bragg um, and you know he had many deployments, when he deployed, then I could go back to New York and work. And then you know, he would come back, you know, drowsy chaperone was over. So go back to North Carolina, but then we ended up at West Point for four years. And at which point I didn't really stop until I was kind of intermittent. I got to do, um, during that time, I got to do enter laughing, um, which was, you know, just an amazing experience as well to work with Joe Stein every day and um, do that character. That character was just so much fun and the show was so much fun. Um, and then I did High Spirits. And so I didn't really stop. Um, and then we went to Kansas and I had another child. And then we went to uh, back to North Carolina for a little bit and then to the Pentagon. And then we retired there. My husband retired at the Pentagon. And then we came back to New York in 2017. Yeah, 2017, we came back and I started doing plays and started doing some regional work and was really uh, having a lot of fun with that. And so I, it's, I, didn't, I don't think I made a con conscious decision to not do Broadway shows. It was just that I was traveling and working out of other um, areas. 
So when I was in North Carolina, I had an agency and I was working out of uh, the South, the Southern market. So my agency was in Atlanta. So I was doing film and TV out of Atlanta and I was working with a lot of bands and, um, you know, doing a lot of concert work. So I never really stopped. I just kind of was doing it in different areas, you know, until I got back home and then the pandemic happened. So. And is there another sort of great role that you'd like to do or would like to have done or? Oh, wow. Okay. So now, so I left Broadway as, you know, Janet Vandegraaff. And now, you know, I think I'm more in the uh, drowsy chaperone category <laughs> now, um, being that I did Didi in, in the prom. And, you know, uh, I just think I'm a, a, a different, uh, in a different category now. So I'm looking at all these shows that are written for you know, the more mature actress and uh, loving it because they're more character roles, more character oriented. And um, and I just love that. I just think there's, you know, such fantastic roles for my age group. And um, I really, I don't know if I'm there yet, but I really, really want to do Great Gardens. I want to play Edie in Great Gardens so badly. I'm obsessed with it. Um, if I could work if I could do anything that Scott Frankel and Michael Corey have written, I would throw myself at their feet in a heartbeat um, between, you know, Great Gardens and, you know, War Paint. Oh my gosh, I just think they write so beautifully for women and strong women, you know, female-centric, you know, characters and storylines. Um, there's a lot of uh, directors I would love to work with. I'm not done at all. I think, I feel like I'm just getting started because now I'm a, you know, I'm in a different category um, and I'm really embracing it. I think uh, Lynn Taylor Corbett told me one time, she said, you know, you're really a character woman in a leading lady body. So I think you confuse people, but now I think I'm a character woman. <laughs> so I think I've grown into my type is what I think I'm saying, I hope. And I'd love to ask about this great rolling woman of the year that you recently did off Broadway as well. And yeah, I mean, how lucky is that? My God, what a role, um, that writing. And I had done so many of Kander and Ebb's shows that it felt like coming home. I felt so comfortable with those songs as if I had sung them before. And uh, Grass is Always Greener is really class. You know, it's, it's a, a very, um, very similar song. And so I felt comfortable doing it. And I felt like, oh, I know how to do this. This is perfect. They write so easily for, for women. And again, writers that write for strong women. And um, I just loved that Tess Harding was such a complicated character. She had so much, she, I mean, so much to grapple with. You know, once again, a career, I find myself gravitating or Either I'm gravitating to these characters or they're gravitating towards me, but women that are grappling with their professional lives and their private lives. And um, that seems to be a running theme. You know, Janet Grant Vandegraaff, you know, is an actress who, you know, wants to give up show business and be a wife, you know, and a mother. You know, same with Nikki and Sweet Charity. She's like ready to give up her dance shoes and, you know, just settle down and, uh, you know, same, just a running theme over and over again. Theta Barra, you know, like, you know, enter laughing, all these women. <laughs> so um, I just think that that was an easy thing for me to do because I had already done it in so many incarnations. And um, Tess Harding is 
the, the material is just wonderfully funny and just so well written that it was really an honor to do it and for them to think of me for that for that part. And was the sort of process like of the pandemic and coming out of it both personally and artistically and oh oh um what was the process like of the pandemic and coming out of it both sort of personally? Oh um well you know I think the pandemic was actually an interesting period for performers. It was kind of forced us into um, being introspective and um, and going down, you know, memory lane. You know, it, it's like when you take away the performing aspect of it, it was like, oh, let's talk about what we did. And all of a sudden, everybody was interested in everybody else's stories. You know, how how has your career been? What did you do? What was it like to work with this one? What was it, you know, just like we're doing now. And I think it was really a good learning experience for uh, younger actors, for older actors. We were just all sharing our stories and as if it was over, like we were all, you know, about to write our memoirs. You know? <laughs> like, And I think um, that that to me was a really great stop, pause, reflect, and recharge, actually. Um, it, it fed my soul to listen to everybody else talk about what it was like to do, you know, such and such. Um, I love that. And I was part, I was working so much, actually, not getting paid for it, obviously, but we all, you know, were keeping busy. We were, uh, um, started to learn what it was like to be on camera all the time and from our own homes. Um, I was part of this one group called, uh, we deemed ourselves the quarantine rep company. And uh, we were a bunch of actors that were working with an, an author or a writer named Mark Brown. And we would, you know, every other week or so, we would get together on Zoom and read his plays and just work on his plays and help him, you know, you know, make corrections and, you know, adjustments to, you know, all of his pieces. And uh, that kept us going. We, you know, had lots of laughs during that. Um, I got to do a lot of things that I never would have done before, like, you know, do game shows with Seth Rodensky and, you know, uh, do another show called Jokes and Storytelling for a friend of mine, Richie Byrne and Mick, uh, Mark Riccadonna, and uh, do that. And then, you know, the online reunions. You know, we did a Susical reunion. We, you know, got to be on Zooms with so many different, you know, uh, cast members to, you know, go down memory lane and see how everybody's doing and check in and see how everyone was faring while we can't actually uh, work, you know, in person. Um, but then coming out of the pandemic, um, you know, I ended up doing a lot of concerts, a lot of galas, a lot of fundraisers. Um, and then getting COVID every time, you know, every time. So um, I got COVID, you know, rehearsing for a gala, uh, you know, one year, you know, the first year out of the pandemic. And then, you know, I started uh, doing the, I did some concerts, but then I did the prom. And then I got COVID during that rehearsal period. <laughs> so I was like, oh boy, this is, this is not going as, you know, the way I thought it was going to go. So, um, you know, my family's getting sick. I was getting sick, you know. So it was slowly but surely, I think we've gotten to a place where we can safely work without getting COVID again. 
you know, and that's what was great about uh, Woman of the Year is we really didn't wear masks. Nobody got sick. And I said, you know what? I was really diligent with the mask the last time and I still got it. So if I'm going to get it, I'm going to get it. But it was a short rehearsal process and it was a short uh, run. So we were just, I mean, knock on wood, none of us got sick. So. And what inspired this new show, Black and Gold, that you're doing at the Green? Um, well, so yeah, that's that's an interesting thing. Um, this is something that I've been, everyone has talked to me about doing for so long. I mean, literally like 20 years, 25 years, and we've been talking about doing a one woman show. They're like, you're so funny. You have all these stories. And I was so afraid of the intimate setting. I was so used to being on a big stage with a big orchestra and the audience really far away from me. Um, I was a little nervous to be in an intimate setting. But then, you know, with the pandemic, you know, working on new musicals with other, um, you know, writers and doing their little, you know, their smaller concerts and smaller uh, cabaret spaces, I kind of grew to love those rooms, uh, like 54 Below and Green Room 42. And I thought, okay, I think I, I think I like this. I think it's okay. Like I, I kind of got over my fear of being so close to the audience and all the storytelling that we did during the pandemic. I thought, wow, somebody wants to hear these stories. Like people are interested and there was, you know, every cast that I've been in so far, um, you know, since the pandemic has had a lot of younger actors in it, all just wanting to hear the physical stories and, you know, the, you know, just what was it like to do this? What was it like to do that? And I'm like, wow, I can't believe anybody's interested in my story. So um, the one thing I didn't want to do was like a cabaret show about my life and my career and where I've been. And it's actually just naturally ended up being all of that and organically kind of fell into place. And I think I'm comfortable now with that part of um, my, my trajectory as a performer. I think I'm okay now telling, you know, reflecting and because I've done it so much in the last couple of years, I'm like, okay, this seems okay. I think I can do this. Well, I'm looking forward to seeing it. Oh, I hope you do come. And this, I'm going to be um, at the green room. Um, and this really is my debut. Like, you know, when I think about it, like in New York, this is the first time I'm doing just me alone, not somebody else's music um, or show uh, or reunion cast or anything like that. Um, just me singing all of my favorite arrangements and favorite songs that I've been doing for the last, I don't know, 100 years. And um June 10th and June 26th at the Green Room 42. And I have the most amazing musicians behind me. Um, my music director is Steve Marzullo, who I met in, I don't aught, you know, the aught 80s, <laughs> like 1988, I met doing West Side Story at Augusta Opera. And uh, we've been working together ever since and different uh, Broadway shows and, um, then I have Ray Marchica on drums and Jeff Lopez on bass. And I am so excited. My arrangements are amazing. And, you know, working on my little stories and 
dovetailing them from song, song to song and just telling some things that really mean a lot to me um, in my life about my family, about, you know, some of my experiences, you know, working with, you know, these incredible luminaries that I've been so blessed to work with in my life. Great. And so I would love to um, close us off by asking, what advice would you give to someone just starting out? Um, okay, so the, the one thing that was, that I would say that was most, um, what's the word, um, essential to me, uh, finding my way in my career was to, I kind of knew who I was. I knew what I was capable of doing. I knew what people were responding to with me and encouraging me to do. And I stuck with that. And I kind of took that and said, okay, I know who I am. I know what I can do. And I stuck with it, you know? Um, I don't know if that makes sense, but kind of knowing who you are is really important. Knowing what your strengths are, what your weaknesses are. Um, I knew I wasn't a really strong dancer, but I knew I could sing and I knew I was funny. And so I was kind of seeking that out, I think. And I also knew that um, I, you know, I, what I wanted to be on Broadway. You know, I knew that that was it. That was my pinnacle. But then once I accomplished that, I was like, okay, so I did that and I've done that. And that's there. I, I know I can do that. Now, how do I challenge myself in another medium? How do I challenge myself and keep growing as an artist? Um, so once you achieve one goal, try and reset new goals and push yourself push yourself to write, push yourself to do something that you're, you know, like scared to do. You know, I was scared to do the cabaret. I'm pushing myself to do it now, you know? Um, and I would say keep evolving as an artist, just constantly keep yourself engaged in. And I think the younger generation is doing that. They are just unbelievable self-starters. They are so, um, prolific at their own self-promotion. They understand uh, social media so much better than my generation does. I mean, it's just it's second nature to them. And I, I'm learning from them, whether they know it or not. I am just following their path and going, wow, this is really impressive. But they know how to capitalize on all of their talents and use them at, at, at the same time, you know? So yeah, that would be my, my, uh, my general advice. <laughs> well, thank you so much for doing this. It's been such a pleasure and an honor to meet you. Oh, Charles, thank you so much for coming. To Listeners, thank you for tuning in. And remember to come back next time for a pride-themed conversation with the author and playwright Paul Rudnick. His new book, Feral Covington and the Limits of Style, was just released, and his myriad other books include I Shudder, Gorgeous, and I'll Take It.
He's also the author of the Broadway play I Hate Hamlet, as well as the off-Broadway plays Jeffrey, Valhalla, The New Century, Regrets Only, The Naked Truth, and Rude Entertainment. His popular screenplays include such hilarious movies as Sister Act, In and Out, The First Wives Club, and The Addams Family Values. You won't want to miss that episode, so make sure to tune back in for that, and thanks for listening.